Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. How are we doing? It's a show. It's a show. It's a How, show. Are you good or do you want to need a minute? I have my research on you here. <laughs> well, I'm sure that dossier is thick. The dossier, yeah. My FBI sources. Mm-hmm. You went to Colby College. I did go to Colby College. You gave the commencement yeah. at Colby College? Wow. What did you think? Love That's Ariana Huffington, who brought a little dossier That's along with her phenomenal. to the interview uh, that uh, you are about to hear. Um, no, before we play the whole interview for you, uh, by way of intro, let me just say that uh, according to the New York Times, uh, Ariana has, quote, done more than anyone else to invent the Internet news business. She's the founder of the Huffington Post, as I'm sure you know. She's written 15 books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Thrive, and more recently, and this is the book she's come here to discuss, uh, The Sleep Revolution, which is also a New York Times bestseller and is a very effective uh, call to arms or call to bed, actually. Uh, so we're going to be talking about sleeping uh, and all sorts of stuff with her and also going to ask her a few uh, tough questions about um, whether uh, she does actually sleep and meditate uh, as she as she recommends to folks. Um, and so, ladies and gentlemen, I, I give you Ariana Huffington. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Ariana Huffington, thank you for coming in. Thank you, Dan. So we're going to talk about thriving and sleeping and <laughs> all that. But since this is ostensibly a podcast about meditation, I just want to start there. Um, how, when, why, where did you start meditating? So I started meditating when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother... Um, was um, a real original. Just think of us living in Greece in a one-bedroom apartment in Athens. Um, She had separated from my father. It was my sister, my mother, and me. And uh, the Maharishi came to Athens. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi of Transcendental Meditation. Exactly. And um, my mother... um, started meditating through Maharishi and then came home and told us, if you meditate, everything will be better, which is the same thing she said about sleep, your grades, your health, and your happiness. She sounded like a modern scientist, except she had not been to college. (laughs) And so my sister and I started meditating. And then it was something which I would return to regularly in my life, but it wasn't an everyday occurrence until my own collapse from exhaustion and my own wake-up call nine years ago when it has become a daily occurrence. I want to talk more about the meditation in a second, but tell me about the collapse. How, where so did that happen? Nine years ago, um, I was two years into launching the Huffington Post, and also I was a single mother with two daughters, one of whom... Um, was going through colleges to decide what colleges she was going to apply to. So I wanted to be the perfect entrepreneur and the perfect mother. And uh, no Blackberries or communications with the office during the day to be fully present for my daughter. And then at night she would go to sleep and I would start working, Um, which I'm sure was on top of many years of sleep deprivation. So I got back home. And um, in the morning at my desk, I literally started feeling cold, uh, got up to get a sweater, and I collapsed and hit my head on the way down and broke my cheekbone. 
So that was what started me. Did you need surgery? Well, I needed to be patched up. (laughs) But more important was um, what happens if you have something that comes out of the blue? Um, I don't know if it happened to you when you had your epiphany, but I was sent from doctor to doctor to doctor to find out what's wrong with me. You know, did I have a brain tumor? Did I have a heart problem? And at the end of this um, journey, I think that if this was a movie, I would have all my doctors in white coats come into a room, look at me sternly and say, Ariana, you have modern civilization's disease, burnout. Mm. And there's nothing we can do for you. You you have to change your life. And I think that the wake-up call was um, scary enough that I did change my life. And it started with my reading a lot of modern science that made it clear that we're living under a collective delusion, that burnout is the way to succeed and be productive and get everything done. And um, so that was really the beginning of um, my changing my own life and also introducing these ideas into the Huffington Post. We launched the dedicated sleep section in 2007 when people were laughing at us. Mm. We started writing about these things in our healthy living section. We have two nap rooms at the Huffington Post, et cetera, et cetera. And it was around, and we're going to talk a lot more about sleep coming up, but it was around this time that you started, you went back to meditation as well? Yes, yes. Around this time, I, I went back to meditating every day. And I now, my, my routine now is, I meditate in the morning uh, before I do anything else. Get up out of bed, go right to the cushion or go to a chair? Uh, To a chair or even in bed. Mm -hmm. I don't have any problem meditating in bed. Um, How long will you go? About, uh, you know, it depends. I can do 20, 30 minutes in the morning, and then over the weekend I do longer. I can do an hour more. But then what is great is that if I wake up in the middle of the night... Uh, I just prop up myself up in bed and I meditate. And I find it's been absolutely amazing. I've had some of the best meditations because you don't have an end point. Mm-hmm. And uh, I invariably fall asleep at some point because I'm not trying to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And I also remember, you know, when the Dalai Lama said who, he gets eight hours sleep and he wakes up at 3 a.m., to meditate. And so when I wake up at 3 a.m., I think, hey, great, the Dalai Lama and I are meditating. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I have had noticed something similar. I mean, I, I and again, we will talk at length about sleep and everybody's sleep habits, but uh, the, the beauty of meditation as it pertains to sleep is when you wake up in the middle of the night, instead of freaking out about your, the fact that you're not sleeping and projecting forward to the next day and how horrible it's going to be, take that time to meditate. And there's some sort of letting go that happens that allows for sleep some percentage of the time. Yes, exactly. So you you do 20 to 30 minutes in the morning, and then if you wake up in the middle of the night, but do you have an evening meditation too, or generally speaking, that's no. what you do? And tell me what, I know what it involves, I think, but because we've had TMers on the show before, but just for the uninitiated, what is the practice? So I I then, um, after my 13-year-old experience, I also um, started meditating in, in many different traditions. 
Uh, I went to India and studied comparative religion at Shantaniketan University uh, outside Calcutta, which was founded by Rabindranath Tagore, and I meditated there. Um, I worked with John Roger, who founded the Movement of Spiritual Inner Awareness, and I meditated um, through the practice that he he gave. So I, I I'm very eclectic in my meditation practice. I believe there is no wrong way to meditate, and different practices uh, bring you different benefits. Some um, help you slow down your mind and stop the endless chatter and some um, connect you more with a deeper dimension of yourself and have more of a transcendental quality. So I, I just feel that whatever resonates more with each person is the practice to follow and people may want to experiment with different practices. So you mix it up every day, something different? Yes. I mean, it depends on... on what I'm more drawn to. I don't, I'm not familiar. Some of the names you just talked about, I'm not familiar with them or their work. So can you just describe for me a little bit about what, what that meditation actually entails? Well, they, they basically give you different mantras. Okay, so these are all Hindu-based uh, Yes, they're different mantras and, uh, and fo- different emphasis on focusing on breathing. Mm-hmm. And, um, but also like different um, different goals. Not that the meditation has to have a very definite goal, but um, that, I mean, like Transcendental Meditation talks about going deeper sort of under the waves into the stillness of the ocean. So it has to do more with silencing the mind and the chatter. Uh, John Roger and the Movement of Spiritual and Awareness, um, Awareness talk more about um, soul transcendence, and has a more transcendental quality to basically moving beyond your identification with your job and um, your success or failure and your um, daily to-do lists and projects. So this was about, the the collapse was nine years ago, you say? Yes. And uh, I I know you made a lot of changes subsequently, but what kind of change do you, what kind of impact do you think meditation specifically, going back to daily meditation specifically, has had on you in these nine years? Oh, a huge impact. Um, First of all, it's something that um, I can go to beyond the times that I mentioned. Any time during the day, if I'm feeling stressed, um, I can literally close my eyes, chant my tone, and uh, connect with my breath. And it can take a minute, and it has an amazing impact of course correcting. Chant my tone. So that's the using the, mantra. the, the silent mantra internally. Internally, yeah. So it's not a, you, I wouldn't hear you chanting. You wouldn't hear me, but unless you had some special talents, which I have no doubt you have. I, I don't. I don't discuss it publicly much, but it's definitely I have a there. Feeling. Um, so that you find that gives you a course correction in the middle of the day. Yes, if you need it. Yes, which I often do. Need. I would imagine. <laughs> I mean, your schedule is crazy. I mean, and by the way, you must have some baseline level of stress because you just sat through a horrible traffic jam to get to this interview. Yeah, but that actually, once I knew you were not live, uh-huh. I had no stress. Gotcha. You see, that's really another way of dealing with stress. I mean, a lot of the time, we don't need to stress. 
I mean, if if I was keeping you waiting and it was a live show, I would have the stress of feeling, well, this is not very professional, or I would hear the obnoxious roommate in my head beating me up for somehow not starting at 10 a.m. You know how hard it is to go uptown. But once I knew it wasn't live and that you were not upset, because you thought I was coming at 4.30. <laughs> and yeah, I thought to me, I was coming early. at 3.30, so I was early. Then I just literally used the time to work and make calls and answer emails. So, but in equivalent times, when I might have stressed, I find that getting into that place, um, which is the, my favorite word actually, is imperturbable, hmm. where you actually don't let outside events um, disturb your equanimity. Um, it's kind of key. And for me, it's kind of very fundamental. It's, it goes back to the recognition that everybody, everybody who is alive has that centered place. You know, Marcus Aurelius called it the inner citadel that we can go to, you know, that retreat into ourselves. And we all have it. And there isn't a single human being that I have met who is there all the time. So kind of life is like an endless process of on course, off course, in the inner citadel, out of the inner citadel. So the inner citadel, that place is imperturbable, but doesn't mean you are perennially imper no, imperturbable. No, no. But I feel that kind of my goal in my life now is how quickly can I cost correct? Mm. How quickly can I catch myself? Hey, I'm not imperturbable right now, or I'm stressed, or um, I'm upset. How quickly can I get back in the inner citadel? I really agree with that. I think, I mean, I, I'm very skeptical about the idea of perfection. I'm skeptical that it's possible, and I'm skeptical of those who profess to have achieved it. And I and I think it's a very counterintuitive thing to to um, pitch to people. Not counterintuitive, counterproductive thing to to pitch to people. Um, but what you just said makes a lot of sense, and I've seen in my own life in my minimal um, uh, meditation career, um, which is that I still make mistakes, but I'm quicker to apologize. Yes, uh, or even to forgive yourself, because it isn't just apologizing to others. Very often, it's the way we we don't just move on because we can see we made a mistake. I'm a big believer in giving myself feedback and seeing how I could have done better. But I'm no longer a believer in having to chew myself up for 24 hours as I would have done in the past. Yeah, but a lot of people of think mistake. you a lot of people think you can't succeed unless you have that internal cattle prod. I totally disagree. I think that that cattle prod that I call the obnoxious roommate is actually the most draining thing we can do in our lives. And I speak as somebody who had it so strongly. I mean, I started life as an incredibly self-judgmental person and nothing in my life was more draining. I mean, I would literally leave your show and spend the next few hours critiquing what I did, what I didn't say, what I didn't say, until I was literally exhausted. And the show in itself wasn't exhausting, but the process in my brain was. Mm -hmm. And so when I stopped doing that, I mean, that voice now only makes occasional guest appearances. 
And when I stopped doing that, you have no idea how much energy was suddenly available to me. So some of it is useful in my experience. I'm speaking my own views here, but but some mm, cattle prodding is useful. Get you off the couch and maybe maybe some uh, constructive post mortem, et cetera, et cetera. But hours and hours of it is where uh, it runs in, out of its yes. utility. But it's also like the the approach. It's like the factual. You know, this this question could have been answered better. Um, you could have done that better. That's one thing. It's the emotional energy <laughs> we put into it, the uh, the judging that we bring to it that is draining. It's not a fact, obviously. I mean, uh, we need to be in a process of constant feedback and uh, and ideally welcome feedback from others. When we come back, one of the producers of the show said, yeah, I can't remember the last time he slept through the night. David over here gets up and has sugar cereal before he goes to bed. So how do these guys, how do we make the changes that allow us to have a good night's sleep? After this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. for people in need of serious pain relief. Lidocare has created a one-of-a-kind pain relief patch that blocks pain for up to eight hours. With the only non-water-based lidocaine patch on the market, Lidocare uses patent-pending technology to desensitize aggravated nerves for an odor-free, ultra-flexible, dry, and light solution to pain. The Lidocare Pain Patch from the makers of Blue Emu. For long-lasting relief, you can wear. Available at CBS. Talk a little bit about meditation. Let's talk a little bit more about sleep. So that was another big change you made after your collapse. Mm-hmm. What did you? How did you go from really not sleeping enough to sleeping enough? What were the steps you took? So the first thing is that I I recognized that um, I had to take micro steps, like not say I'm going to completely overhaul my life overnight. Uh, but to actually begin to make small changes. I'm a big believer in that. And so when it came to sleep, I started by adding like 30 minutes to how much sleep I was getting. How much were you getting? I was getting about 
four or five hours. Oh, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. So I started getting 30 minutes and 30 minutes. And then what actually made it much easier is that the person I became when I was getting more and more sleep was became like a magnet. I wanted to be that person. And I wanted to be this. I did not want to be the sleep, the sleep deprived person. How bad were you when you were sleep deprived? Well, I was more cranky. I was more irritable, and I was definitely much less imperturbable. Mm-hmm. You know, because I was much easy. It was much easier to get me out of my inner citadel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I found that I went to eight hours. Uh, which was my optimal time. And uh, as I'd been reading endless scientific findings about sleep since my collapse, I knew that the vast majority of people, unless they have a genetic mutation, that means I would have been fine on four or five hours, and I knew I wasn't, uh, most of the rest of us need seven to nine hours. And where you are in that spectrum is individual. How do you know? You know because you wake up without an alarm and you wake up completely recharged. So my sweet spot is eight hours. I have friends who are great on seven. I have friends who need nine. So do you set an alarm now? No. I mean, I may set an alarm if I have something very important to make sure that something doesn't happen and I oversleep. But I I never need my alarm if I've gotten my eight hours. I always wake up before it. What time do you go to bed? I don't go to bed at the same time. I don't think in most of our lives that's possible. Uh, So I go to bed eight hours before I have to get up. So it depends on what I have to do in the morning. Like, do I have a... I just came off a book tour. Do I have an early morning show to do? Then I'll go to bed earlier. What if you have an event the night before? You just cancel the event? If I have to get up very early, yes. And uh, Something's got to go. Something's got to go. And you know, here's what is interesting. The way you are saying it now sounds like a sacrifice. In my life right now, it's not remotely a sacrifice because the alternative is getting up in the morning and, f- and going through my whole day in a zombie-like exhausted state, and I can't stand that anymore. So I'd much rather cancel something, or not, not book it ideally, so you don't have to be canceling the night before. I'd much rather not watch Game of Thrones. I've only watched one episode, I have to confess. <laughs> then, Of this season of or this, ever? Ever. Ever? <laughs> All right, we got to talk because it's a good show. I know, but it's been a very busy couple of years. No, I know. You've, you've, <laughs> uh, you're, you've been in the news, uh, so I follow your work, and you, you have a lot of it. So I get it. That seems like a worthy sacrifice. You say in the book that we are in a sleep crisis. We, meaning all of us, our mm-hmm. culture. W- what do you mean by that? What I mean is that uh, in the States, but it's a global crisis, but let's just look at our country, um, 40% of people don't get the sleep they need. And the consequences are pretty dramatic in terms of our health and our healthcare costs. Uh, In terms of productivity, just for example, last year and regularly every year, we lose over $60 billion and um, about 11 days in productivity. And it's kind of ironic because most people sacrifice sleep in the name of productivity. Mm. 
And yet modern science is absolutely conclusive that if you don't get enough sleep, you're not going to be as productive, you're not going to be as creative, you show up at work with 40 or 60% of yourself, you're not going to be as engaged. And um, also, we're not going to make good decisions. What is fascinating now is because we're going through this transition of more and more people being aware of that and making changes in their own lives and in their workplace, we see every kind of behavior coexisting. We see people still bragging about just got four hours sleep last night because I'm so busy and important to congratulating employees for working 24-7, which is the cognitive equivalent of coming to work drunk, all the way to CEOs like Jeff Bezos saying, I need eight hours to be an effective leader, and I get it. And, uh, in fact, I saw him at a conference recently, and he said to me, I may make fewer decisions, but if my decisions are 5% better than they would have been if I was sleep-deprived, that's much better for Amazon. So it's not just better for me, it's better for the company I run. And that's something which is the new norm that's emerging, but we're not there yet. And it's kind of exciting to be in the middle of a culture shift. I think a little similar to what was happening with smoking think sleep deprivation is the new smoking. If mm. you go to the 50s and 60s and look at the history, there were doctors literally in white coats advertising cigarettes in the 60s saying things like, I smoke mentals because they refresh my th throat. No, all the science that tobacco was killing us was already in. It wasn't a matter of lack of science. But the perception had not caught up with the science, and that's where we are now. The science about sleep is in. This has been an incredible uh, few decades, really since 1970, of scientific findings around sleep. But the perception has not yet caught up. And you say there are lots of changes we need to make, like moving the school day later for teenagers where their brains, you know, they, because of their circadian rhythms, they yes. need to sleep later. We, 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 you, you talk about accidents on the road with long-haul truckers. Um, there are so many changes we need to make. Do you think we're equipped to make them? Oh, absolutely. I feel that the first step is changing our minds about sleep, and then we'll be able to change our habits and change policies. But where we are right now is changing people's minds around sleep. And there are also movements that have begun, like the Start School Later movement is very impressive. And by the time Alexander, your son, goes to school, I hope that they won't have these ridiculous early times, not just for uh, high schoolers, but for kindergartners and elementary and middle school kids. And we have now evidence that a lot of the diagnosis of um, ADD is really sleep um, deprivation. Hmm. And you have uh, so many children misdiagnosed as having ADD, put on medication with all the vicious cycle consequences. You talk about this, well, the book name of the book is Sleep Revolution, and you say that we're really in the middle of a health, a cultural shift around sleep. Do you think that it is in any way tied to what appears to me to be a cultural shift around 
mind, mental fitness and meditation, which I think is kind of the uh, will be thought of in the not too distant future as the same as physical exercise. That you'll you'll do mental exercise too. Um, and do you tie those two to the idea of the third metric that you often talk about? In other words, do you think we're yeah. we're seeing a bigger shift Absolutely. toward well being? Absolutely, I think. Uh, in Thrive, I talked about how we are going beyond the two metrics of success and measuring a successful life, you know, money and power status, to include the third metric, which starts with well-being and goes on to include wisdom and wonder and giving, and that that's really a complete life. And without those elements, it's like trying to sit on a two-legged stool. And I think sleep and mindfulness meditation are very interconnected um, because it's really the recognition that we need to disconnect from our world to reconnect with ourselves. And that it's basically the same um, impulse and uh, the same recognition that drives both movements. So for years, were you on a two-legged stool? Well, you know, I was kind of very lucky in that I was always very interested in meditation and in spiritual teachings. So I I would very often uh, return to meditating and go to retreats. So my life was uh, was a mixture um, of, of having very intense periods where I would fall off the wagon and then get back on the wagon meditating doing retreats, uh, sleeping more. I was not, I think I would be dead if I was on, <laughs> on a continuous trajectory of not including these parts of my life in what I was doing. It's interesting because your spiritual background didn't prevent you from having the collapse, but it gave you somewhere to go after the collapse. Exactly, exactly. And that was incredibly important. It made the... It made making changes after the collapse much easier. You talk um, in the book about the process of making change um, uh, around sleep. Uh, I think there are a lot of people, I was listening to my colleagues talk about their horrible sleep patterns, especially but not I'm after at you, today, Josh. right? Um, everything is going to change, everything's, Josh, right? So how did Josh, who's behind the boards here, is one of the producers of the show, said, yeah, I can't remember the last time he slept through the night. But, uh, David know, over here gets up and has sugar cereal before he goes to bed. So how do these guys make changes so that they can have and, – and this is not just a question about sleep, but I, I really do want to know about sleep. But behavior change is right. so tough for all of us. So how do we make let, – let's start with sleep and, and go bigger from there. But how do we make the changes that allow us to have a good night's sleep? Well, the first step is actually – recognizing its importance. You see, these are smart people here that you uh, have. You don't, don't overestimate. <laughs> so uh, once they convince themselves of sleep's importance by reading the science, by understanding how we came to devalue sleep, that was a big question for me. So how come, as a culture, we came to believe something so false. Well, in the book, you say it dates back to the Industrial Revolution. Yes, yeah. it dates back to the Industrial Revolution when we started treating human beings like machines. And we thought since the goal with machines is to minimize downtime, it's the same goal with human beings. And on top of it, you had many cultural icons like Thomas Edison who are completely wrong on sleep. I mean, there was this great guy. He invented the light bulb. But he said things that were so absurd about sleep, that sleep will be eliminated, 
there will come a time when we never actually sleep. And, but he was like a hero. So people were uh, reading about him, thought, well, you know, he's a great man. You know, I need to cut down on my sleep if I'm going to be a great man. I actually had a really touching email from Harry Reid saying, you know, Senate, I, Senator, Senator Harry Reid, yeah. yeah, saying, and I, he said it was okay to talk about it. He, um, he said, I had read Edison as a young man, and I thought, I'm going to cut down on my sleep. Look at what Edison is saying. And then he said, I read your book, and I realized... This was absurd. And he said, I started sleeping more, and I told my staff <laughs> they need to sleep more. So that's just one example. It may not have been reading about Edison. It may have been what happened with Bill Clinton. He had a professor who said, great man, you know, don't really sleep more than four or five hours. And he tried to arrange his life not to sleep more than four or five hours. And David Gergen paints a fabulous portrait um, in his book about Clinton, of what it was like to work for Clinton and have him exhausted and not being able to focus and talking about how this uh, damaged the beginning of his presidency. And, of course, Clinton himself later said that the most important mistakes I made in my life I made when I was exhausted. And he did not specify what mistakes, but don't we all wish that he had gotten a good eight-hour sleep? First step is recognizing the issue. Exactly. That's the first thing. What do you do after that? After that, the most important thing we need to do, and you'll understand that being a new dad, is create a transition to sleep. You don't just drop Alexander in bed at night. You just, I'm sure, have a ritual. Yes. You give Doesn't him a bath. Doesn't always work. But you have a ritual. You give him a bath, you put him in his PJs, you sing him a lullaby, you read him a story, you lower the lights, et cetera, et cetera. He pees on my foot and laughs. He pees on your foot and laughs, whatever. There is a, like the hall of good night moon is really what we need for adults. Good night moon is basically saying good night to your world. So we need to say good night to our smartphones, good night to our to do lists. Good night to our pending projects. Good night to our mistakes, our incompletions, our worries about the next day. And each person will have to construct their own transition ritual. In the second part of the book, after you've convinced yourself that sleep is important, in the second part I go into how do you change your habits so that you can get a good night's sleep. And... uh, I can talk to you about my ritual. Yeah, I'd love to know. Which may be different than yours. Um, Mine starts 30 minutes before I'm going to go to sleep. I turn off all my devices and gently escort them out of my bedroom. You are the head of an organization that's been valued in the hundreds of millions of dollars. How do you turn off your devices without, I don't know. I'm also a mom, a, a very neurotic mom of two 20-something daughters, which is an even bigger problem because I always want to be available to them if something happens. I have a dumb phone. Remember this phone? Yeah, 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 sure. It has no data. It's a phone that my daughters have and my overnight editor on duty has. And so if anything happens, they call me. I have to say, that's good, that I've never been called. But it gives me this peace of mind yeah. 
that if something happens, I will be called. But it has no data, so it's not a temptation. It sits there. <laughs> but if I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm not tempted to pick it up because there's nothing. So um, anybody who needs to be reached for whatever reason or wants to be reached um, by an elderly parent, a child, whatever, can get a cheap, dumb phone. Um, then after I remove all the devices from my bedroom and lower the lights, in the meantime, the temp I like my, the temperature in my room about 67 degrees, and I have invested in blackout curtains. But if you don't have blackout curtains, I recommend a nice eye mask. Um, then I have a hot bath with Epsom salts. I, if you don't like baths, have a shower. There is something about the water purification ritual um, that slows down the brain and begins to wind down the body. And it's kind of that ritual of a demarcation line between our day and our sleep. I actually love kind of rekindling the romance with sleep, so having beautiful lingerie or anything that is not your, the clothes you go to the gym in, you know, that you, the same T-shirt that you wore during the day, just something that's special. I only read physical books in bed, and I love to read spiritual books, philosophy, poetry. So you're not getting the blue light from a machine? In no, other words, yeah. not only are you not getting the blue light from the machine, but you, I, I'm not reading anything that's going to stimulate me to be thinking about Donald Trump, the election, the state of the media. <laughs> I, in fact, even when I read novels, I like to read old novels like Trollope or Jane mm -hmm. Austen or things that are outside my world. Comedies of manners. Comedies of manners, exactly. Just things that have nothing to do with my life or my world. And I end the day, and I think that's really important because every one of our days is a mixture of good things and bad things happening. And we can give the closing scene of the day to the bad things or to the good things. It's up to us. And I like to give the closing scene of the production to the good things. So I write down three things I'm grateful for. You actually write them down. Mm -hmm. Even uh, my daughter... Um, lives, my younger daughter lives with me. She's a painter, so she's probably going to be living with me for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and which I love. I'm a Greek mother. I don't understand what is the problem when people complain about their children living with them after college. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Why shouldn't they live with you even after they get married and have living babysitting? So anyway, for the time being, she's living with me. And sometimes we, we tell each other, like before we go to bed, we tell each other things that we are grateful for. Oh, okay. So so uh, it's funny. In the book, you listed somebody who, and I can't remember who, I think it was an, a, a, an executive of some sort, who does this thing that he made up, which is just yes. listing all the things he's grateful for, which I started to do about six months ago, and I, I just made it up. Um, and I find that it actually quite regularly puts me That's to sleep. That's fantastic. In fact, he... Um, he is um, a really it's a prominent. Hokey, by the he's way. very hockey. Actually, that's you said something really important, which is your transition ritual is going to be hockey. 
You don't have to share it on Dan Harris's podcast. You can keep it to yourself. Because you're listening, Josh. <laughs> you can do a hokey thing. You can do you don't a have totally to tell me. hokey. But please tell me because I'd like to verbally Just abuse you about, about it. Just write about it on the Huffington Post. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to tell Dan. But my point is, who cares? I don't really care what your, how hokey and unsophisticated my ritual is. Actually, that, that <laughs> person that you mentioned is a very prominent and extremely successful um, financial guy in Chicago. And he um, sees his blessings, he counts his blessings in the form of his children and his grandchildren jumping over a fence. Right, 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 right. Which is right. like a version of, of counting sheep. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and and he, his, his daughter is a psychologist in cognitive behavioral therapy, and she told him that this is very much cognitive behavioral therapy, which incidentally, if anybody is listening and has a real insomnia problem and is tempted to, uh, to be on sleeping pills chronically, Cognitive behavioral therapy is unbelievably effective. You talk about the research in the book that shows that CBT is actually significantly more effective than sleeping pills. Absolutely, without the terrible adverse effects. Well, I was I was wondering. I, I want to just put out there because I want to talk. I want to get back to the issue of behavior change. But now that we're here talking about um, sleeping pills, you go hard at both the sleeping pill industry and the caffeine industry, and I wonder if you've had any backlash on that. No. I'll tell you why. Because there's nothing they can say. I think they want to uh, to keep the spotlight as far away from themselves as possible. Uh, first of all, let me just say, when we say the caffeine industry, I don't mean coffee. I love coffee. I start my day with coffee. I drink coffee until 2 p.m., which is when, if you drink it after 2, it's more likely to stay in your body and get in the way of your sleep. I I went hard on the energy drinks. Yeah. What's the problem with sleeping pills? What's the problem? Have you listened to the side effects? I, I, I read the book, so I know what the problem is. Okay. I'm just teeing you up to talk about it. <laughs> I was worried for a moment, Dan. <laughs> so, you know, first of all, we in New Zealand are the only countries allowed to advertise sleeping pills. Hmm. And this ad should absolutely be abolished on television because here you are. You have all these happy people frolicking in beautiful fields while a cheerful voice reads a list of terrifying side effects that includes what for me is the deal breaker. You may get in your car and drive without being aware of it. I would do nothing. <laughs> that means I may get in my car and drive without being aware of it. What about, okay, I'm, just, I'm going to ask a personal question question of personal on my end. Um, I have this crazy schedule where I anchor Nightline during the week and then I anchor Weekend Good Morning America on the weekends. Right. So uh, I need something uh, to help me go to sleep on Friday night. What time are you done on Friday night? Usually I don't have to anchor Nightline on Friday night. So I, ha- I have the time to get a full night's sleep. But the problem is I usually anchor Nightline on Thursday night, sleep in Friday morning, and then I want to go to bed at eight o'clock Friday night, but I've slept in. Right. So what time do you go to bed on Thursday night? Around midnight. What time do you finish Nightline? Usually we finish around 11, but if we have to do it live, I'm not finished until 1. But on a good night, we're finished at 11. At we 11. Tape, we pre-tape. So you, again, you're good about going, going home, having your transition ritual, yes. which 
you're going to refine after this day. Yes. <laughs> and then... No, actually, you know, you and I once spoke um, on an internet thing together, like a Skype thing, and, yeah. and we, were, we were doing... We were co-hosting it or something, and I asked you about sleep rituals, and you said a few things like keep the room cold, keep it dark, don't have your devices in there, and I've stuck to that ever since. Oh, so my, my ritual is pretty, pretty good. good. Yeah, except you don't have anything hokey and unsophisticated, but I hope no, you No, 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 I have lots of hokey and unsophisticated. Oh, okay. Tons. <laughs> Rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> Great. So, well, if you go to bed at, mid- at midnight, you're up by 8. Yeah. So what time do you have to get up on Eight. Saturday morning? I try. I get up at three forty-five. So you I have to, to get up at three forty-five. Yeah. So I try to go to bed by eight to get seven hours or forty-five minutes. Right. So I think I understand that you are not likely to be um, very tired by eight o'clock at night. So that's the time when the ritual has to get much hockier. Like the the long the bath has to be get longer, flickering candles. Uh, sex is pretty good. Did you know that um, orgasms are Mother Nature's ambient? Is that okay, saying that? Yeah, um, you can say that. I'm just hoping that my wife listens to yeah. this podcast. So uh, you have to tell her that it's <laughs> it's really part of her, <laughs> of her duties. Okay, so. <laughs> all right. This is awesome. Um, you can come back anytime. <laughs> and uh, just basically making sure that you have help with Alexander on that night. Mm-hmm. Because that's like it's like game day. Saturday is game day. It's like Roger Federer when he has game day at Wimbledon. He rents two houses, one for his wife and children because he has young children, and he's and he knows if something happens to one of the children, he's woken up in the middle of the night. He won't be as good at Wimbledon. So that's how that's how intense a lot of athletes get. Because they know the connection between performance and sleep. So you have to perform on Saturday morning. So you need to like be ruthless about prioritizing your sleep without stressing about it because then that becomes its own problem on uh, Friday night. So you think I need to add a bath to the mix, keep it long, low lights, flickering candles. Sex. If I sex, if I can uh, make it happen, um, and uh, and then so get some, get a book also. Yeah, yeah. that uh, again takes you to another world. Your equivalent of Good Night Moon for adults, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, write your gratitude list and meditate. All right, this is a, you know, I can you, do all this. Don't think of it as I'm going to sleep. Think of it I'm going to do an indefinite meditation. I don't have to stop this meditation at any time. Whether you meditate before or after sex, it's up to you and your wife. But uh, I promise you will be able to sleep without taking anything. I like it. This is a win. This this whole interview is a win for me. <laughs> Interesting, you brought up meditation again, and I, w- I meant to ask this before. This, the, the link in my mind between meditation and sleep is interesting because if you go on a long meditation retreat, which I try to do once a year, you actually end up not needing much sleep. So uh, uh, I have a neuroscientist friend who once explained to me that that's because you're suffering less. Um, I feel like when I go on retreat, I'm suffering more. <laughs> but in other words, you're you're doing less useless rumination, and therefore, yes. which takes so much energy that the body needs less sleep. He, I don't know where he gets that from, but that's just one theory. I wonder if you have any thoughts on this. I think it varies a lot 
among individuals, like, for example, the Dalai Lama, who, after all, meditates more than most of us, yes, three or four still hours a day. sleeps eight hours. Yeah. But there are others. After I've talked to Mathieu Ricard, for example, the Buddhist monk and biologist, who uh, finds that when he meditates, but we're talking about long meditation sessions of hours and hours, he needs less sleep. And I think exactly for the reason you mentioned, that we don't, our brains um, are not so preoccupied with uh, all this chatter and worries and anxieties, and therefore it's easier for us to fall asleep, go very deeply, and um, be fully recharged. Um, I want to get back to the thing I was talking about before about behavior change because it's interesting. You talk about this too. That you had to do a huge set of behavior changes after your collapse, and I wonder what if you have general thoughts about how because our habits are so deeply ingrained. How do we change our lives when we need to? It's very clear, as you said before, that the first step is admitting it. They say it in AA. Yes, and they're right. Uh, they're right about a lot of things in AA. Um, what else do you recommend? You talk about the importance of baby steps, for example. Yes. I, I'm, well, it's admitting it, um, understanding why changing your habit is really important, being absolutely crystal clear about that, and then taking baby steps and encouraging yourself along the way. I think that's a very important part. It's like I'm sure you've, you've just watched your, your son learn to walk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I write in the book about what it would be like if your son had the same mind charter that we, that we have when we learn a new habit. You know, he would take a step and fall and say, oh, this is never going to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is so clumsy. <laughs> this is terrible. That's what we do to ourselves. So taking baby steps and then when we don't do it as well as we want to or when one baby step doesn't need doesn't lead to the next baby step or we regress just accepting it not judging ourselves and moving on that's the single most important thing about behavior change for me also happens to be the single most important thing about meditation yes when you get lost no big deal start again no big deal but that's how you change anything in your life absolutely so, so let me ask you this: You, 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 uh, as you know, you certainly, you personally have some critics. Um, there was in the New York Times Magazine profile that I mentioned at the top. You had there were some people who were critical of you. I just want to get your sense about this. You talk a lot about sleep, but the, in the article, some ex employees said they they were getting emails from you in the middle of the night. Is that true? No, you know, a lot of people have asked me about that, and the truth of the matter is that. We have an amazing culture at the Huffington Post uh, where among the people I work with directly, I get emails regularly saying, I had a bad night. Um, You know, my child was sick or my flight was late or whatever. I'm going to get in at 12. They don't even have to ask because that's the culture. We... um, have let everybody know that when they finish work, they are not expected to be on email, they are not expected to be text, to be on text, that if something urgent happens that we need them for, we'll call them. Um, we have introduced, as of last summer, a holiday email tool. Holiday email tool? Yes. So when you go on vacation, 
you um, you can opt in to instead of getting this out of office, which is kind of useless. How often do you get an out of office, and five minutes later you get a response from the person? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we are all addicted to responding. Um, so let's say if you had emailed me last summer when I was in Greece on a two-week vacation, you would have gotten an email back that said, Ariana is on vacation. If this is urgent, contact her chief of staff. If it is not, um, contact her again after 11th of August when she'll be back. This email will be deleted. Oh. This email will be deleted. That's awesome. So that when you got back from vacation, you don't have to go through a backlog of thousands. Exactly. Well, two good things. One, when was the last time you had two weeks with zero emails in your inbox? I can't remember. When I was seven. Yeah. <laughs> Before email was yes. invented. Yes. So it's just amazing. I mean, you have no idea how I came back so truly, deeply recharged with so many great ideas for the Huffington Post. And and now I love how many of our employees have adopted it. So you're not up in the middle of that emailing people? No. Though. I mean, unless I'm in a different time zone and they get it uh, in the middle of their night. But no, absolutely not. I'm, I'm very religious about not touching my phones, um, three of them, <laughs> until... I wake up in the morning, and then when I wake up in the morning, to give myself at least a minute when I don't go to my phone, when I um, set my intention for the day, um, look ahead at what um, what I want to accomplish that day, rather than immediately allow the world to dictate what my priorities are going to be based on what's at the top of my inbox. So what do you, I mean, I, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about that article. Like the, the, let me just, the reporter says, quote, despite its nap rooms, meditation rooms, and breathing classes, which were introduced as Huffington entered her thrive phase, it is described as a surpassingly difficult place to work. Now that is based on anonymous ex-employees. Yeah. So I want to say that right up front. Are you these just disgruntled people, or is there is it just tough to run what is a twenty four seven operation, the Huffington Post, a massive operation which is responding at a hair trigger to news events, and institute these higher ideals that you talk about so publicly? There's no question that we need to be constantly getting better at creating a culture that um, prioritizes well being and makes it clear to everybody that. Uh, um, employees' well-being and what is best for the company are absolutely integrated. Uh, but also, remember, we are swimming in a culture which has a very different message. And we have a lot of young employees. So how they operate or what drives them or the pressures they put on themselves are not just dependent on what the employer and the culture around them dictates. So you mean you can you can say to people, look, we've got nap rooms and meditation rooms here, but you can't for, you can you can only lead the horse to water. You yeah. can't force these folks exactly. to exactly. Or you can say when you leave work, you don't have to check your email, but people may be checking their email all night. You know, I'm not their mother, and nobody can impose these things. 
this is just the culture we're working to create. And and it also is a big part of our editorial initiatives. I mean, we have three edit, big editorial buckets. The first is obviously news and politics. The second is solutions journalism, you know, identifying solutions to problems, not just putting the spotlight on the problems. And the third is our whole wellness um, initiative. And we have, I mean, you were part of our pioneer series uh, that focused on um, what people are doing in this arena. I interviewed Mark Bertolini for this series mm -hmm. to talk about what he's doing at Aetna around wellness and sleep and meditation. Um, so this is also something that um, a large part of our journalists are working on every day. So it's not just our culture. It's not just what I'm saying and writing about every day. It's not just the nap rooms and the healthy free snacks and and all that. It's also what so many of them are literally writing about and doing videos about and Snapchatting their way about. Incidentally, we had a, a Discover pop-up channel on Snapchat for a day last month when we launched our Sleep Revolution College Tour, which now has hit 350 colleges. And um, nobody predicted that we would have 10 million people on. It was an entire day on sleep and recharging, which shows again how the zeitgeist is shifting. I, I think there's no question the zeitgeist is shifting. I also think that there's no question that you've played a role in that. I just wonder, I guess what I'm trying to get at is the difficulty of bridging the talking of the talk and the walking of the walk when you're running the company a, a company such as yours, where you, you know, you're not Ben and Jerry's, you're not just selling ice cream or whatever. You are reacting to world events, but uh, I cultural don't really events. think that's the problem because I think there is going to be no company that doesn't have to have someone available twenty four seven, except not the same person. You know, basically, if you're a customer. A service company, you need somebody to be available. If you're an agency, you need somebody to deal with clients. Most companies are increasingly operating on multiple time zones. That in itself is like a huge pressure on employees. That's why we need to change what we prioritize and how we structure companies because more and more companies are 24-7 companies, even if they're not working on, uh, on uh, world affairs. So how, do you and you feel like you've done that, or yes, you're moving I mean, in the right direction? I feel we've done an enormous amount, and we are constantly coming up with ideas, uh, improving what we are doing. Um, we are really looking forward to doing more. What's your next book? Okay, you won't believe me. No, I believe you. You will believe me. I will. Well, maybe. Let's have a bet okay. about it. Let's have. <laughs> is it going to be about UFOs? This is the last book. This is the last book. Mm -hmm. You're, you're vowing now. I'm vowing now on the 10% Happier podcast with Dan Harris that this is the last book. <laughs> Why? I feel very complete. This is my 15th book. Uh, I feel that in the same way, after I've written a lot about politics, I've done a lot of books on politics, and I reached the point where I felt there's no other book I want to write about politics. I mean, I can write about politics every day on the Huffington Post. In the same way, I feel now I'm very passionate about these issues of how we live our lives, about our well-being, sleep, 
um, reconnecting with ourselves. But I feel I have said everything I want to say in a book form. And I'm sure I will have a lot of more ideas and constantly new things are happening in this field that I want to comment on. But I have a great platform to do it in. I love speaking about these topics. I speak around the world on these topics. I have absolutely no intention to do another book. Do you have a sense of what your next big mission might be? I think it's going to be related to this, but it's not going to be a book. I can speak from firsthand uh, experience that books are torture, um, <laughs> but your books are reaching a lot of people. Um, I found it very useful. I think it's a very effective call to arms on the sleep front, um, and I learned a lot, and I've learned a lot from sitting here talking to you. Um, <laughs> Anything else I should ask before we, uh, or anything else you want to say before we wrap it up? I've loved it too. This is really great. And uh, what I want to say is that the great thing about a book like Thrive or The Sleep Revolution or 10% Happier is that they are evergreen. So the messages um, are not any less important or real or significant as time goes by. And it's great to know that they're always there. They're being translated into other languages. I mean, I'm sure you get uh, people suddenly in another country um, reaching out to you because they read something that inspired them. So I love that too, that it's, um, it's, it's something that can continue to have an impact um, without my having to do any more work on it. <laughs> <laughs> You've put them out into the world. They will have a long tail. Exactly. They will have their own life, and the long tail is really wonderful. Don't you love it when you go on social media and you see somebody posting a picture of you, of themselves, reading 10% Happier yes. or Thrive? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it's amazing. And you want to say, hey, you know, there's a sleep revolution. You're, you're still on Thrive? <laughs> You should reply and tell them that. I'm sure you do. Um, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank Pleasure you, to finally Dan. meet you in person. We've communicated in lots of digital mediums, uh, media, but never in person. So really nice to meet you. Great to meet thank you. you. And, and I hope to meet Alexander one day. Yeah. Not, no, he'll, he'll bite you or drool on you if you meet him now, but soon. I want to thank as well the producers of this show, uh, Lauren Efren, Josh Cohan, the aforementioned Josh Cohan, who will now be getting full night's sleep. I oh, see no. a lot of hope. You do? Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to channel that as well. I also want to thank Sarah Amos, uh, Dan Silver, Steve Jones, and Andrew Kalb, and all of you for listening and watching. And uh, if you like what we're doing, rate us, review us, and share it with a friend. We'll be back with more guests and guided meditations very very soon. Take care. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. 
And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now, in hardcover or digital editions, wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think, some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.